Well, good morning again, everyone, and thank you so much for joining in uh, for our online service, for worshiping together in the Word and in song. And now we continue to worship God through the submission of our hearts before His Word. And to do that, I would invite you to pray with me as we look into God's Word for instruction, uh, perhaps correction, uh, perhaps rebuke, but always to learn about Christ and the Gospel. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, again we thank you for the privilege it is to worship you in this way. We think of our brothers and sisters all around the world that are worshiping you in different ways, perhaps some in prison, some hiding, some at the threatening of persecution and suffering. And thank you that we still have this freedom and we can uh, even broadcast our services to a wider audience. So I, I do thank you. I'm, I bless you, Father. I also pray for us now as we open your word. This is a supernatural activity. It's not an activity of the mind. Uh, it's not simply an activity of human uh, uh, venture. This is a supernatural activity, and we need your help, Father, to hear from you, to correctly interpret your word, and to apply it by the Holy Spirit. So we ask for your help now. Open our eyes that we might see the wonderful things that are contained within it, and cause us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Don Wilson is a contributing author to a website, crosswalk.com. It's a website that contains a number of Christian resources. In a recent article, she started her article with these words. The first time I heard about becoming a Christian, I was at my grandmother's side. Just ask Jesus into your heart, sweetie, she said, and you won't go to hell. Don Wilson writes, what girl in her right mind would reject that offer? Many of us have been taught a similar approach to evangelism and sharing the gospel, inviting people to trust Christ. Some of us perhaps are even using an approach like that today. But one of the things that has struck me as I've read the gospels and I've looked into the life of Christ is that Jesus Christ never made coming to him easy. It almost, to me, is that he, on purpose, made it very difficult to become his follower. Now, we won't need to be careful because we could fall into the ditch on the other side. Please understand that when you raise the issue with a person about the cost of following Jesus, that is not the price they need to pay to be saved. 
That is, in fact, the expectation of a person who is saved. You see, dying to self cannot save you. Picking up your cross and following Jesus cannot save you. Losing your life for Christ's sake cannot save you. These are attitudes that accompany genuine salvation. They do not contribute to salvation. You cannot earn salvation through denying yourself. No, let's be clear so we don't fall onto the other side of the ditch. Salvation is by grace through faith. But saving faith is always accompanied by certain expectations. And so when we speak in terms of the cost of discipleship, counting the cost, we're referring to the fact that this is what's expected of someone who is truly born of the Spirit and saved. It is not a ticket to salvation. Please keep that in mind as I unpack today's sermon for us and try to apply it. So we have a road with two ditches. On the one side is making coming to Christ easy. Just ask Jesus into your heart and it's okay. And the other side is making our denial of self an expectation that contributes to salvation instead of the result of salvation. My text this morning is found in John's Gospel, chapter 12, and I'm going to be reading verses 20 to 26. John 12, 20 through to 26. John 12, verse 20. Now among those who went up to, the, up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is God's Word. We've read in last Sunday and looked at the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem. I intimated that this was his coronation. This was his, his, his 
entrance into the place where he would be crowned king of the world. If we see the procession of Jesus into Jerusalem in terms of him marching towards his enthronement, I think we've properly interpreted the event. Jesus would come in, and in a few days, he would be sitting upon his throne. His throne was a cross. It was there that he would be lifted up. And in fact, when we continue to study this chapter, we'll see that Jesus himself said that that's where he will be lifted up, where he will draw all men to himself. As he made his procession into Jerusalem as king of kings, the Pharisees became more and more vexed regarding his popularity. And what they said provided a perfect segue into today's story. In fact, if you were writing a story, you probably wouldn't be able to write it as well as this. Remember that the Pharisees had just said, look, the whole world is following him. And then in verse 20 we read, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Isn't that a perfect scenario? The whole world is following him. And the Greeks came and said, we want to see Jesus. We know very little about these Greeks. There's been much speculation on this passage, who they were, where they were from, what kind of interview they wanted to have with Jesus, what was said. We, the truth of the matter is we know nothing. We don't even know if the Greeks actually spoke with Jesus. We're really not certain. The text doesn't say anything about that. We don't know very much about that uh, request that they wanted to see Jesus. But we do know, and this is important to the understanding the passage, we do know that their desire to see Jesus triggered something in Jesus. Their desire to come to Jesus sparked something in the mind of Christ. The approach of the Gentiles to Jesus signaled something for him whereby he said, Now the hour is come for the Son of Man to be glorified. There is a theological connection with the world, meaning those outside of Judaism, coming to Jesus. There's a theological connection to that and the cross and the glorification of Christ. 
when Jesus interacted with his mother way back in John 2 at the wedding of Cana, one of the things he said to his mother upon her requesting help was he said to her, my hour is not yet come. Through the gospel, we have read on at least two other occasions where the, the people, the Jews, wanted to take, take hold of Jesus. And John told us that they could not even lay a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. But now, as these Hellenistic people sought to see Jesus, Jesus said in verse 23, my hour has come. This is the hour that he was born for. This is the hour that he lived for. This is the hour that he set his face towards. His hour had now come. So he says in verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. When Jesus anticipates his hour, the hour when he would be glorified, the hour when he would be crowned king, he sees in terms of an agricultural metaphor, he sees himself going and dying, being planted in the ground. And if that takes place, then much fruit will come from that. We as Western Canadians know that picture so well. We know that as the farmer, as the gardener puts seed in the ground, that that seed, it seems to be, deteriorates and dies. But some weeks later, suddenly green growth appears and fruit starts to come. Then Jesus says in verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. Obviously, he is thinking of himself in giving his life. But now in verse 25, the key word there is whoever. He's now shifting to those I would contend are would-be disciples. These are the people that want to follow him. These are the people that want to come to him, just like the Greeks had asked. And so he sees his own death, and then he says, whoever. He's now shifting his attention in this statement to would-be disciples, those who want to follow Christ. He says, whoever loves his life will lose it. And whoever hates his life, and this is a key phrase, in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus is saying to would-be disciples, if you love this 
life in this world, if you love this world, you'll end up with nothing. This isn't new teaching in the Gospels. I find it in Matthew 10, Matthew 16, Mark 8, Luke 9, Luke 17. This isn't new teaching for our Savior. He's saying to those who would come to him, you want to be my disciple? Then be prepared to lose your life. If you do, you'll gain it. But if you love your life in this world, if that is, superior, if that is an, a superior affection, you're going to lose it. Paul said this so clearly in Romans 8. He said, The mind set on the flesh is death. The mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God, nor cannot. Those in the flesh cannot please God. If our focus is on our life in this world, on things of the flesh, we are opposed to God, we cannot please God, and the end result is not life, but death. So the, the statement of Christ, this axiomatic statement, is very, very clearly portrayed. If you want to hold on to this life, you're going to lose it. You're going to lose it. And then in verse 26, Jesus moves into another, another metaphor, a metaphor of, 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 of hospitality, a metaphor of, 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 of a servant. And he says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. You can't serve Jesus from afar. You can't stand back a few yards and, and say, I'm serving Jesus. If you're serving Jesus, you're following Jesus. And then he says, where I am, there will my servant be also. Remember, Jesus is heading to be a seed crushed and put in the ground. Jesus is heading for his enthronement, the cross. And Jesus is saying to us what he has already said many times through his public ministry. He's saying to would-be disciples, if you want to serve me, you're going to have to follow me, and my road is leading to death. My road is leading to death. And where I am, you will be if you want to serve me. Jesus was on his way to the cross and what he's saying, beloved, is that the Christian life, Christian service, is a, a life that follows Christ through a crucified life, through to a cross-centered life. We don't preach on this very much in evangelical circles. The last time I ever heard a message from another preacher was maybe over 40 years ago or more 
when the late Dr. Ellie Maxwell at Prairie Bible Institute preached a sermon, The Crucified Life. Jesus is saying, let's get the expectations clear. You want to come to me? You want to follow me? Then you're going to go where I'm going, and my route is crucifixion. My route is death. Now, what do we mean by that? We don't mean that a person then must enter into this mindset of thinking of self-rejection, self-abuse. We don't need to be thinking in terms of, uh, of uh, hating who we are as image bearers of God. We don't need to enter into an isolation, a monastic lifestyle and deprive ourselves. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying that his road to glorification is through the cross. And our road as disciples is also to follow this crucified life through to our glorification. And the way we accomplish that is by seeking God's life for ourselves as superior to the life that we're existing in. I'll explain more of that in a minute. We need to understand that when Jesus is thinking in terms of men and women approaching him and wanting to follow him, he's essentially saying, count the cost. My disciples, my servants, have a life of crucifixion through to glorification. But if you choose this life, you will die. If you choose the life I offer you, you'll live. The characteristics that Jesus is teaching about a Christ follower is someone who participates with Christ in his suffering. It's a person who participates with Christ in living the crucified life so that they can achieve glorification. Restated another way we could say, a lover of this life treasures his or her life more than Christ, but a hater of this life treasures Christ more than this life. The point is not so much about what you hate. It's about what you love. This isn't unusual teaching by our Lord. In Matthew 16, Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In Luke 14, he said, 
after a great crowd had accompanied him, and, and he turned to them and said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, 25. This sounds like very strong language, doesn't it? We're called to hate our life in this world. We're called to hate even family. We're called to renounce everything for Christ. Our gentle, passive, Western ideologies recoils at this. Even when we read this, we, it sounds so wrong to us. But I would wish for you and I to heed the warning of Dr. John Piper when he writes these words. Whatever you do, don't domesticate the radical teachings of Jesus. If they make you uncomfortable, let them do their work. They are designed to create real disciples who are ready to lose all to gain Christ. That's the key. This hyperbolic language of hating your life and hating your family is designed by God to give us a mindset to show us how our intense passion and commitment to Christ and the life that he calls us to is to be so, so intense that in comparison to the life on earth, it's almost like we hate the life on earth. But don't change the words. As Piper admonishes us, don't domesticate that. Let that sink in. Let these words of Jesus do the work in my life and in your life. Let them do the work that the Holy Spirit intends for us to see that our passion and our admiration and our delight and our treasuring of Christ needs to be at such a level that in comparison to our earthly loves, these things are like hatred. Indeed, this life is a gift. Christ is not intending us to simply focus on hating everybody and everything we do. This life is a gift. The New Testament teaches us in 1 Timothy 6 that, Christ, that God in Christ has given us all things richly to enjoy. The, the key here, folks, is that we are to love the giver more than the gifts. Our affection for the giver is to be so intense that the things that he's given to us 
are marginal in our value system. The difference between those two things, our love for the giver and our love for the gifts, is to be so different, so wide, so far removed that one seems like hatred compared to the other. I want to apply this this morning in two different ways. The first is not to forget that this is Mother's Day. It's the day we honor mothers. And I hope that you'll have the opportunity, if you can, to do that. Mothers have a God-given passion and they have a God-given instinct to care for their home and their children, their families. When we see mothers who are giving their attention to their home and their children, that's an honorable thing. That's a praiseworthy thing. But the question that emerges from this text of Scripture that the Holy Spirit perhaps wants to apply to your lives, and I'm speaking only to mothers at this point, the question that emerges to you on this Mother's Day is to stop and think and ask yourself, do you love your life? Do you love your home, your house? Dare I say, do you love your children more than Christ? You see, to be a disciple of Christ is to be aware of setting these good gifts, your house, your home, your family. To be a disciple of Christ is to beware of these things of life, to somehow surpass your affection and your delight and your treasuring of Jesus Christ. We often give Christian mothers credit, and rightly so, for serving Christ by serving their children. But there's a warning here. You and I, as parents, and you as mothers, cannot serve our children if they are exalted above Christ. If they are more important than our relationship and our passion and our delight in Jesus, you may lose them. But if your delight and treasuring and affection and passion for Jesus exceeds your home and your family, you very, you very well may keep them.
The good news, though, to mothers is that if you exalt Christ, if you follow Christ in the terms that he calls you to, he will also, at the end of time, grant you the triumph. There is an application, though, to all of us this morning. As I started out this message, I introduced us with this idea of how we share Christ and the gospel with others. And the application for you and I this morning is that we would do well to follow the example of Jesus. We would do well to exemplify Jesus. That as we talk to people, the men and women that we talk to about the Lord, we would do well to also include what Jesus always included is the cost to follow him. We do a disservice to people when we simply have them pray a prayer, ask Jesus into their heart, and then it's done. The teaching of Christ is clear. To be a disciple of Jesus is to die to self and it's to live this life in a way that places him as the priority above all things. And we need to call people to count the cost. And this exchange of priorities, this idea of placing Christ as more important than anything else in this life, is not going to be an easy road to follow. And people need to know that. Placing Christ as a superior affection in our life is going to make this life difficult. If anything, it's going to bring conflict and trouble. Disciples of Jesus must be willing to offend co-workers. Disciples of Jesus must be willing to offend family members. Disciples of Jesus must be willing to offend others rather than offend the King of Kings. But at the end of time, disciples of Jesus will realize that the loss that they have experienced that sometimes feels so intense today will actually one day appear minimal, if at all. When we see Jesus face to face in all his glory, when we see Jesus as men and women who have been glorified with him, the arduous and troublesome issues of this life will be non-existent. When all my labors and trials are o'er and I'm safe on that beautiful shore, just to be near the dear Lord I adore, 
will through the ages be glory for me. Oh, that will be glory for me, glory for me, glory for me, when by his grace I shall look on his face. That will be glory, be glory for me. A disciple is a servant. A servant follows Jesus through death to this life and onward to glorification. Such a servant will be with his master for eternity. And such a servant will hear, well done, well done. May you and I be found to be such servants of Christ that love Christ so much that it's almost like we hate this life. Let's pray to that end. Eternal God, our Heavenly Father, there's a hardness in this teaching. There's a difficulty with this teaching. But there's a huge promise with this teaching. Where those men and women and boys and girls who are willing and fully expect to die to themselves, to hate this life in comparison to their love for Jesus, there's truly a great promise that we will not only realize eternal life, but we will realize a shared glory with our Savior, the King of Kings. Father, there may be some listening to your word this morning and you have convicted them of their worldliness. You have convicted them that they are indeed lovers of this life. They are indeed lovers of self. I pray that along with this conviction, you would also provide the comfort of the Holy Spirit, enabling them to repent and again believe your words. And Father, if there is anyone listening who is not a Christian, perhaps they think that in their definition they're doing quite well, But when they hear that a Christian is a person who denies themselves, who takes up their cross, who hates their life in comparison to their love for Jesus, who follows Christ even through the crucified life, they realize that they don't fit into that category. But Lord, I know that 
by the precious work of your spirit in conversion and new birth, you can give them a heart that is not only inclined to these things, but desires these things. So do this work in all of our lives, I pray this morning. I pray especially again for mothers that they will be honored. But I also pray that the mothers who are able to hear this word and receive it will seek to honor you above all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.